Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Blessed by the, uh, the worship this morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We are picking up in verse 25 this morning. We're going to look at verses 25 to 34 to the end of the chapter, basically to chapter 7. As is our custom, we are preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Chapter 6. Um, we are looking at uh, verses 25 to 34. So uh, we are, I don't know where you are at in your Bible, but I'm flipping the page today. That's like so monumentous for me because we've been on this same page in my Bible for like nine or ten months now. And so it's kind of a, a feat. You know, I, I try to mark these moments in, in the course of our, of our church. You know, Yay, turning the page. So if you would, uh, we're going to read the scripture this morning, verses 25 to 34. Uh, then we will pray and, and then we will get to work. So if you would look with me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you give us these amazing promises. We thank you, Lord, that by looking to your word and hearing what you say and choosing to believe you, to trust in you, to put our hope in what you say, we have these amazing reassurances and the opportunity to serve you, to lay up treasure in heaven. And we look forward to that day, Lord, in which we get to stand before you in glory and to see how your master plan unfold. I pray, God, that today you would speak to our hearts and reassure us about our anxieties. I pray, Father, that you would take away our fear. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When you think of a false prophet, you undoubtedly conjure up in your mind images of some guy in some faraway land in some distant moment in history, and he's usually dressed in camel hair or some sort of exotic garments, and he's usually telling the masses to do some crazy thing. He's a false prophet, and so he's putting on the pretense of religion in order to manipulate. But the truth is, false prophets are not, strictly speaking, relegated to a previous point in history or a different continent. False prophets are all around us. Just within the last 40 years, we've had some of the most spectacular and amazing false prophets in the history books. 
I'm going to just mention a few of them to you as we get started this morning. The first one I want to draw your attention to, and these are individuals who have made the headlines in a rather spectacular fashion. I'm sure there's more than these. But what I want you to see is these are not people from faraway places or distant moments in time. These are people that you're familiar with, that you read about and hear about in the headlines all the time. Going back to 1969, the first individual I want to mention to you this morning is a fellow by the name of Charles Manson. Charles Manson gained a small following of largely homeless individuals, outcasts, and uh, they were seduced by him to do his will. Charles Manson was an aspiring musician, and he was rejected by an individual by the name of Terry Melcher, who was uh, in the sound, audio recording, music producing business. And so he told his followers to go to 1005 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles and to kill the people living there. This was in August of 1969. It was the height of the... Uh, 60s, so to speak, you know, the hippie movement and, and things of this nature. And Manson believed that Terry Melcher was living there. But unbeknownst to Manson, Terry Melcher no longer lived there. Instead, that house was now occupied by an actress. Uh, her name was um, Sharon Tate. She lived in that home with her husband, director Roman Polanski. And so on August 9th, 1969, four of Manson's followers broke into the home, brutally murdered the actress Sharon Tate along with her unborn child and they had four guests with them that evening as well. Charles Manson gained influence and power over his followers by telling them stories of how he had magic powers and that the song Helter Skelter was really a coded message predicting the end of the world and that he himself would become the leader after the apocalypse. So, of course, they were reassured by this, and they did his bidding. Six people lost their lives as a result of Charles Manson. That's child's play compared to the next person on our list, Jim Jones. Perhaps you've heard the expression, don't drink the punch. If you're not sure what's in that punch, stay away from the punch. Don't imbibe in the punch. It's from Jonestown. The strangest part of this cult following is that the people who followed Jim Jones were people very much like us. They were from various denominations, largely Methodist, Presbyterian, some disciples of Christ. They were middle class, middle income, educated, informed. They were not illiterate individuals. They flocked to him. They were taken in largely by his charisma, his magnetism, his charm. He was a good-looking individual. He was born on the wrong side of the tracks, and he preached a message of acceptance and tolerance and grace, and he could relate to them. He came from their same neck of the woods, and so they related to him. And so he began a, a colony in Guyana, South America, known as Jonestown. And he came back several times to the States and told his followers back here in the States that it was a tropical paradise and a safe haven. And if they were looking to get away from all the cares and all the anxieties and all the fears of this world, they could join him in Jonestown. It gained the attention, it gained the interest of a California congressman by the name of Leo Ryan, and Congressman Ryan went down to Jonestown, visiting there on November 17, 1978. There were 15 temple members who pleaded privately with Congressman Ryan, asking if he would take them back to the States. They said they didn't like it there, and that Jim Jones was actually quite abusive. So he took them back to the airstrip, and there on the airstrip, temple security from Jonestown shot at their plane, killed Congressman Ryan, as well as several of the Jonestown members who were attempting to flee. When the security guards returned back to camp, Jim Jones had, of the entire group that were following him, over 900, actually it was 934 people 
ingested a fruit punch drink laced with cyanide, valium, and chloral hydrate. I also had some other drug in it, but I can't pronounce the name of that. I'm not sure what that is, but cyanide is bad enough on its own. And so, whereas Charles Manson had six people murdered, Jim Jones was responsible for the death of almost a thousand people. And this is 1978. This is in the last 40 years. He's from California. He's not far, not far from here. Next on the list, I'm sure many of you have heard of him. This is from my neck of the woods, Texas, David Koresh, Branch Davidians, and the Branch Davidian in Waco, the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. He wasn't always known as David Koresh. He was formerly known as Vernon Wayne Howell. He was a handsome, charismatic Texan. And in 1983, he began telling people that he was a prophet. And over the course of about 10 years, from 1983 to 1994, when their compound was sieged by the FBI, he gained a following of over 120 individuals. He told them that he was the Christ, the Son of God, that he himself could open the seven seals that are found in the book of Revelation, and that he, when he was good and ready, would usher in the apocalypse. They believed him, and so when the FBI sieged in 1994, their compound, they were, of course, loaded to the teeth with weapons and bullets and things of this nature, he told them that it was the beginning of the end and not to fear, for he was in control. As the building caught fire and began to burn, he reassured them that this was the moment. Stay in their places, don't move until you see God come forth victoriously to deliver you. They didn't see God, and they burned to death, 83 of them in all. Next one, this is closer to home. This is Canadian. We've been working our way up the North American province, and now we've landed in Canada. You think, yeah, that's all those crazy Americans. No, we've got a few crazy Canadians, too. So let's, let's be fair here. Luke Jorette and his accomplice, um, I want to say Joseph de Mambre is his name, they're Franco-Canadians. They're from Quebec. And they promoted a significantly... I'm not, I've studied this this last week. I was trying to figure it out. I don't think I still understand it. It's basically a belief in the Knights Templar mixed in with a little bit of astrology and all of this supported by fears of ecological impending catastrophe. Basically, they were telling people, you know what, this world can't support us. We can't afford to eat. Global warming is real and we're all going to cook alive or we're all going to starve to death. Either way, you should follow us we believe in the Knights Templar, and really the thing we need to do is escape this world entirely. Well, how do we do that, you might ask? Suicide. Mass suicide. We believe that if we drink this punch and we engage in this act of suicide, we can engage in interplanetary travel. We need to escape Earth and get to Mars, because things are better on Mars. And so it was... So it was that just a few short years ago, this was in October of 1994, at the same time that the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas was burning, these individuals of this particular order led by Joseph de Mambre Frank, uh, and Luc Jorret, uh, French Canadians Quebec from Quebec, they led a group of mass suicides in all 85 people lost their lives, believing what these individuals told them. And we move on. Marshall, his real name was Epluite, but he changed it to Applewhite. He killed his followers with applesauce. I just, that's kind of interesting to me. Applewhite kills his followers with applesauce. This is, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Haley Bob comment. This is, again, California, close to home. On March 19th, 1997, Marshall Applewhite reassured his followers that they needed to escape the fears and the cares and the anxieties and the burdens of this world 
by committing suicide and traveling to a different planet in the train of the Haley-Bopp comet, which if you're familiar with Haley-Bopp, it circles the solar system every couple of decades. There's a near pass to the Earth. And he reassured them that there was a UFO in the trail of this Haley-Bopp comet and that they could get onto that UFO ship, sail out of the solar system if they committed suicide. And so it was over the course of three days on March 24th, March 25th, and March 26th in 1997 that they killed themselves. A total of 39 members took his word for it. They ate applesauce that was laced with a mixture of phenobarbital and vodka. And just to make sure that they died, they wrapped plastic bags over their heads in case that the concoction didn't work, they would asphyxiate to death. But now we come to the greatest false prophet of all, or so it would seem. Joseph Kibetire, he's an African. Preaching the end of the world and the need to follow the Ten Commandments, Kibetire and his main accomplice, a lady by the name of Credon Verinde, said that they saw images of Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary. They reassured their followers that this world was in fact coming to an end, that the cares of this life would indeed overwhelm us, and that the only way to escape was again suicide. They weren't as persuasive and weren't as charming as Jim Jones or all the others, Marshall Applewhite or any of those folks. And so they had to force it to happen. And on March 17th, 2000, gathering at a building for a worship service, uh, Credo Merverinde set fire to the building and over 1,000 people burned alive inside that building the night of March 17th, 2000. And this goes down in history as the greatest suicidal cult event to date. Now, what do all of these false prophets have in common with you? You hear about all of these false prophets and you think, yeah, these guys are real criminals, real crooks, real dangerous guys. But do you really want to know who the, do you really want to know who the worst false prophet is? It's not Jim Jones or David Koresh or Charles Manson. The worst of all false prophets is you. You are. And I say that with love, but it's true. Pause and reflect with me for a moment on how these men were able to manipulate their followers. It was through a combination of fear. Now let's talk about fear. What is fear? Fear is an apprehension about something that is still future. It's concern over something that has not happened yet, but it is so powerful and so riveting that in the present moment, you take actions to change a future you have not seen. All those individuals who followed Charles Manson, all those individuals who followed Jim Jones and so forth and so on, David Koresh, they were all gripped by these false prophets in a cloud of fear. Fear of a future we're not sure about motivates us to change our behavior in the present. Fear is something that we are all prone to. All of us. All of us in this room know there have been significant moments in our lives in which we have taken drastic actions, life-altering actions based upon a fear or an anxiety that may not have been totally justifiable. Worriers, perpetual worriers, are individuals who are concerned about things that most likely will never happen. And it is this fear that grips all of us, which we are all prone to on occasion, 
that Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter 6. He is very concerned to get us not to be anxious, not to be afraid. The Greek word for anxious that's in this passage is found eight times in the Bible altogether. Out of the eight times it's found in the New Testament, six of them are right here in this passage. He says it six times. He makes a statement in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Why do you think Christ feels the need to reassure us? Well, it's tied to the first word in the passage, therefore. Therefore what? The therefore is a logical connection to the passage that has come before. He's just gotten done telling them, basically, you can't serve two masters. You will love the one or hate the other. You will serve the one, be devoted to one, and despise the other. And he has told them you can't serve both God and money. Money. Now, you can't serve God and you can't serve money, and so the obvious implication is you need to choose to serve God. We hear that in our consumeristic culture, We come in here last week, we sit down, we hear a whole message on you can't have it both ways. You're either in it for God or you're not. And immediately, we're afraid. Immediately, we're gripped by fear. The anxiety sits in. Well, I can't just completely devote my whole life to God. I've got to go to work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. I've got to make a paycheck. I've got to pay the bills. I've got to devote a significant amount of my time to things that have nothing to do with God. We tell ourselves that so that I can feed myself, so that I can clothe myself. And Jesus makes the command, you can't serve one or the other. You have to serve, you can't serve them both. You have to serve one or the other. We hear that and we're afraid. And Jesus is no dummy. He's no slouch, which is why the very next verse out of his mouth, the very next words out of his mouth, don't be anxious. Do you really think that you're the first ones to ever struggle with this demand that your whole life, your whole paycheck, your whole bank account should be used in such a way to honor and glorify God? Do you think you're the first ones that ever struggled with that? Let's not forget that he's preaching in Galilee. He's got a massive crowd following him. We don't know how many. It's safe to assume in the thousands, 5,000, way more people than what's in this room for sure. And he says to them, you can't serve God money. You got to choose God. That's what he says to them. Can you imagine looks on their faces? We have an abundance of wealth here. You and I, we work our jobs, and we have all kinds of money at the end of the day to pay our housing expenses, to pay for food, and then on top of that, we have an amazing amount of leisure time after that, time that we can spend in whatever we want. These people did not have that situation. They worked six days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, just to make enough to have something to eat on a day-to-day basis. There was no leisure time except for the Sabbath, and even in that in and of itself had become quite a chore by this point in history. And he says to them, listen, you got to focus on one or the other. you got to put one first and the other second. You can't serve both of them. And just like many of us in this room, <laughs> you can imagine the looks on their faces. Uh, how am I going to do that? This is a hard message. Jesus, you're too radical. You're too crazy. You're too demanding. Now, Israel, particularly Galilee here where he's preaching, is at a crossroads there in the Middle East where I'm told that the migratory pattern of the birds, every bird headed north or south at 
They all flock right through this region. And so as Jesus is preaching, he says, you've got to choose one or the other. You've got this whole crowd scattered before him on the grass, listening to him preach. And he says, you have to serve God, not money. They're filled with fear. And as he seeks to reassure their fears, it's not beyond the pale of imagination to think that he just looked up in the sky, saw some birds flocking, saw some birds migrating on their way, doing their normal thing. And he sees them and he thinks to himself, object illustration. Let me reassure their fears. He makes this statement as he's getting ready to teach. He makes this statement, number one, don't be anxious about your life. And he's going to say it six times in this passage. Here's the first time. Don't be anxious about your life. Specifically, with regards to your money, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Well, we need to eat. We need to drink or else we're going to die. He knows that. He says, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on, what you're going to wear. Those are the two things he says here, what you need to feed yourself with and what you need to clothe yourself with. These are the two things he's going to touch on. And there's probably a flock of birds flying overhead. They're on this grassy field here in Galilee on the the side of the lake there. Probably got some nice, wonderful flowers, some wildflowers blowing in the breeze. And he's going to take them right where they are, right where they're at, and he's going to point to nature around them and say, see, I'm telling you something that's right in front of your very eyes, okay? And that's what he does here. Don't be anxious about what you eat and drink, and don't be anxious about, your wear, about what you wear. Verse 26, he says, now again, you probably have a flock of birds migrating overhead. He says, look, check it out. Birds up in the sky. Oh, that's great, Jesus. Thanks. That's helpful. How's that going to help me with my, what I'm going to eat today and what I'm going to drink today? He says, no, no, no. It, it connects. It says, look at the birds of the air. It says they neither sow nor reap. Now, this is farming terminology. This is something that they're all familiar with. You want to eat? You live in Palestine. You live in Israel in this day and age. You've got to go out and you've got to farm. Read 9 to 5 Monday to Friday job, except understand it in terms of Monday to Saturday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. job, or 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. job, okay? Understand it in their terms and recognize it's way, way harder than what you've got. He says, the birds of the air, they don't have a Monday to Friday 9 to 5. They don't have a Monday to Saturday 7 to 9 p.m., 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. They don't have that. That's what he's saying. He says, I want you to look at them, okay? They neither gather nor reap. They don't sow, they don't reap, and they don't gather into barns. And yet, are they starving? They're not starving, are they? They're not dying of hunger. He says, your heavenly Father feeds them. They get fed. And now notice this last expression, what he says right here. Aren't you worth more than they are? That's argument number one. The birds eat, and you're worth way more to God than the birds. Here's argument number two. He moves on, verse 28. Why are you anxious about your clothing, what you're going to wear? Consider the lilies of the field. And how he gestures at the grass. And he says... Look at how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Now, this is weaver terminology, you know. In this day and age, you couldn't go to Target and buy a nice shirt. You couldn't go to Walmart or Superstore and, you know, accessorize your wardrobe. If you're going to have something to wear, 
you're going to have to pull aside your sheep. You're going to have to take some shearers, some, like a knife that you're going to have to sharpen beforehand. You're going to shave all that wool off that sheep. And then, and this is something that's totally foreign to me because I've never even seen this done in my life. You're going to have to spin this wool on a, a wheel that you, you know, kind of, and it's, you know, hand-powered, so you're kind of doing this thing with your foot, and it's going to spin all this wool up into thread. And then you're going to have to take that thread, and you're going to have to knit or crochet or something a whole fabric on a loom that you can wear. We, we go down to, you know, Fabric Barn, and, and we buy like a couple of yards of, of fabric, and we sew stuff. I, I've seen my wife do that, but I've never seen my wife break out this giant loom in the backyard and start like doing it thread by thread. Okay, I've got to put some this way, and I've got to kind of go back and forth like this. It's quite the, uh, quite the process. And Jesus' statement is, I want you to look at the grass. Grass doesn't do any of that. And for us in this room, that's really hard for us to relate to because we, we really don't do any of that either. I mean, somebody somewhere does, but not us. And what Jesus is saying is, the grass doesn't sew, I'm sorry, the grass doesn't spin and weave. It doesn't do these things. And he makes a statement, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, the garments and the clothing of this day and age, the things that the average person like you and me would wear, they're very homespun. That's where the term comes from. They're literally homespinning their own clothing. Dyes like blue and purple and things of this nature is extremely expensive. You don't dye your clothing it's going to be like a dull brown or uh, some sort of an off-white, depending on the color of the sheep and, and what kinds of bit of dirt and particulate you got into the sheep's wool when you were spinning all of this stuff. Most people's clothing isn't going to be elaborate or nice. It's not going to be blue or purple or violet or any of these kinds of colors. And Jesus' statement is, you guys need to know that the grass doesn't do any of the stuff that you do in terms of toiling and spinning, and yet you look at the grass, you see these beautiful wildflowers out here. Solomon. And all his luxury and all his opulence was not dressed as beautiful with as many variety of colors with such splendor as the grass. The grass looks better than Solomon, the wealthiest, and until the birth of Jesus, the wisest man who has ever lived. Now think about that. What's Jesus really getting at? He makes a statement, the grass is worthless. We mow it. We cut it. We throw it into the oven to burn it. That's what he says. He goes on, verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, in order to understand the argument, you got to back up and you have to hear what fear is telling you. Your emotions have a logic all their own. They really do. Emotions have a logic to them. They're tied to some value, some principle, some truth, or something that you're believing. When you're afraid, what your emotions are telling you is that you are in danger. You're able to be hurt or harmed or some misfortune is going to come to you. 
Now let's listen to it a little bit more closely. When fear speaks, what it's saying, if we listen closely to the fear, is that we are vulnerable, that we can be hurt, that we can be injured, that bad things can happen to us. But now let's listen a little closer. If we are able to be hurt, if we are vulnerable, then do you know what our fear is really telling us? It's telling us we are not in control. Nobody would willingly or voluntarily hurt themselves. Nobody would willingly or voluntarily subject themselves to harm or injury. And so when we are afraid, when we are anxious, I want you to hear your emotion sharing the gospel with you. You see, there was no fear. There was no apprehension. There was no anxiety before Adam and Eve sinned. In the wake of that rebellion in the garden, the whole universe was plunged into brokenness and fallenness. So now that a significant portion of our lives are marked by fear. But when we really stop to think about the fear, what the fear is telling us is it's saying we're in danger. Now, if you listen more closely, what the, the fact that we're in danger is telling us is that we are vulnerable, that we are able to be hurt. And if you listen more close to that, that vulnerability is telling us that we are not in control. We never were. And the fact that we are not in control, what that is telling us that someone or something else is in control and has always been in control. Now, that's what fear is saying. But do you know what we prefer to hear fear say to us? Run faster. Work harder. Labor more diligently. Get the pay raise. We hear fear and immediately, rather than using the fear as an opportunity to trust in God, I'm not saying all fear is bad, but rather than hearing what fear is truly saying, we just accept it on a surface level and we act out of that fear. And many times our reactions and our responses to our fears are irrational. We need to listen more carefully to what fear is saying. Jesus has just said here, and the only way you're going to agree with Christ, the only way you're going to hear him is if you understand that you are not in control and that the one who is in control is good. I mean, the birds, they eat, and the grass, it gets clothed. But does God love me enough to feed me? Does God love me enough to clothe me? Does God desire my good more than I do? In order to hear what Jesus is saying to you, you have to be able to surrender, set aside your fears, and recognize the only way I agree with Jesus, the only way that I understand what he's saying to me here, is if I embrace the fact that God is good, that he is in control, that he does know the future, and that he is saying I should serve him, and that in serving him, he will meet all of my needs. But we prefer to be our own false prophets. We hear Jesus say, you can trust God, he's good, he's going to take care of you. We hear him, we see him pointing to the birds and gesturing to the grass. We can see all those logical examples around us, but at the end of the day, do we really believe it? 
Do we really agree with him? And that's why he closes with this last expression, oh, you of little faith. That's what he says right there. Tail end of verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more so clothe you, oh, you of little faith? And that's the root issue. That's the root issue, church. Fear of this world, anxiety over trying to meet our own needs, trying to work for money. All of the emotion that's bound up in that choice is motivated by a lack of trust in God. You don't trust him. He's promising you to take care of you. He's exhorting you to put up treasure in heaven. He's saying you can't, choose, you can't do both. You have to choose one or the other. He is crystal clear. The only people who are confused is us. And the reason we're confused is because even though we hear what he's saying, we listen to our fears. And remember, fear is about a future that hasn't happened yet, which means we are predicting our own future and taking our own actions to avert it, which means even though we've never killed other people, even though we've never led anyone to commit suicide, we're hurting ourselves by not trusting in God. Oh, you of little faith. Now, it's funny because the scriptures seem very interested in encouraging us not to be afraid. Ed Welch, in his book, Running Scared, makes the statement that the Bible speaks about fear more often and commands not to be afraid more often than any other command. I was a little bit skeptical of that claim, so I, I counted it up. The truth is, Ed Welch is a little bit off in his calculations, and I have great respect for him of the Christian Counseling Education Federation. The number one command in Scripture is to love. The number one command in Scripture is to love. The number two command in Scripture is not to be afraid. The, there's only a marginal difference between them, so it's, it's clear to see how Dr. Welch made his, his miscalculation, but they're very close. You know how many times it says in the Bible not to be afraid? Believe it or not, 400. It says a grand total of 428 times. There are 428 different places in Scripture that says, do not be afraid. The specific phrase itself, do not be afraid, occurs 33 times. Do not fear, 37 times. Have no fear, four times. Do not worry, once. And do not be anxious, eight times. Six of which occur right here in this passage. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. Don't give in to your fears. Now, the passage that comes to mind most often as I consider this, guys, Psalm 23. He makes me to lay down by still waters. He leads me into green pastures. Now, we have this image of a loving shepherd who cares for us, who wants what's best for us, and, and we have this image that we are sheep. Now, as sheep following our shepherd, you know, the first time he says, don't be afraid, I'm taking care of you, we hear that, we're like, okay. And then he says it again, no, 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 I'm taking care of you, don't be afraid. And we're like, oh, okay. And then the more he says it, you know, we begin to feel like, well, why is he nagging me? You know, why do you keep saying it over and over and over again to the tune of 428 times in the entire Bible? Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be anxious, don't be fearful, don't fret, fret not. You know, listen to me. I'm telling you, don't be afraid. And after the first six or ten times, maybe, we're like, yeah, okay, I heard you. But if we have any kind of humility, we'd say to ourselves, okay, why does he keep saying this? We tell ourselves we're not afraid that we're trusting in God, but God keeps telling us, no, really, no, really, listen, don't be afraid. 
which means that as our shepherd who sees our hearts better than we do, he probably sees something there that we're not even willing to acknowledge to ourselves. He says, don't be afraid. Now, a shepherd's job is to care for the sheep, to protect them from danger. They're pretty vulnerable. They're prone to attack from all kinds of predators, wolves, bears, lions, things of this nature. And so it's kind of like we're in the field and the shepherd's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And we're like, yeah, no, I heard you. And he's like, no, 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 don't be afraid. And remember, as our shepherd, his job is to protect us from harm. Which means if he is so concerned to have us not be afraid, then there is real harm in our fear. I don't want you to flip there. I just want you to listen. Mark, this is from Mark, chapter 4. And we've, we've covered this same parable numerous times over the last three weeks. He makes a statement. He says, do you understand this parable? Of course, the disciples, they don't get it. And he says, the sower is the parable of the sower sowing the seed. And he says, the, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them, and these are the ones on the rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and they choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, when we consider spiritual danger and the fact that our shepherd is trying to keep us safe from danger, we hear Satan. Yeah, we know Satan's bad. We know he's dangerous. So when Jesus mentions Satan, yeah, that's very dangerous. We should avoid that. And of course, he goes on. He says, the deceitfulness of riches. And we've spent the last three, week, three weeks looking at the deceitfulness of riches, so it goes without any doubt. Yeah, deceitfulness of riches, money, it's, there's some spiritual danger there. We hear that. We get that. And then he says, of course, um, and uh, uh, it says the deceitfulness of riches and then the desires for other things. That's the lust of the heart. And we hear that. And we're like, yeah, okay, that's, that's dangerous. All those things are spiritually dangerous. But do you know what he said that preceded those in this passage? This is from Mark 4, verse 19. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world, the anxieties, the burdens, the fears, the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Your fear of your current economic financial situation will drive you to do one of two things. Trust in God, honor God, believe in God, obey God, or your fear will consume you and become a false prophet in your life and drive you to honor things other than God. Which is why the shepherd is so concerned as he's speaking to us in this passage, Matthew chapter 6. Six times he says it. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. I get it. No, no, no. Don't be anxious. I don't think you do get it. You look at your pocketbook, you look at your work effort, you look at your job situation, 
And then just step back and ask yourself, what consumes the majority of my thought time? Do I think a lot about my job? Am I focused most often on trying to get that pay raise, trying to please my boss? What really drives me? Is it Jesus or is it your job? You can't serve both God and money. Okay, Josh, so I still have this anxiety. How do I fight against my fear? That's what he says in the very next verse. Again, he reiterates, he says, therefore, verse 31, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? The same old litany of stuff. What shall we wear? Verse 32, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, nowhere in the Bible is God saying you don't need to have clothes or, or you don't need to drink, okay? It's not some sort of pseudo-Superman spirituality where you can just go all day with no clothes and no food. He's going to take care of you. That's not what the Bible's saying. God is fully aware of the fact that you need clothes. He is fully aware of the fact that you need food. He gets it. Now, there's two statements made here. He says, the Gentiles, for the Gentiles. That, notice that first word there, for, connects to the verse before it. The verse right before it says, don't be anxious. In other words, don't have any anxiety. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles do all that stuff. Now he's drawing a contrast here. Don't be anxious. Why? Because people who have no relationship with God are anxious over those things. You have a relationship with God because you have a relationship with God. You shouldn't be like the people who don't have a relationship with God. When you worry over those things, you are just like the people who have no relationship with God. Now here's the thing. In the midst of making that statement, he says, God knows you need that. He knows you need that. Now, they seek after these things. You have a relationship with God, so that should not be your primary search. That should not be the primary thing that drives your Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, in their case, Monday to Saturday, 7 to 9 p.m. That shouldn't be the thing that motivates you. That shouldn't be the thing that gets you out of bed. That shouldn't be the thing that drives you. They have no relationship with God. They seek after all those things. You have a relationship with God. What should you be doing? Seeking the kingdom. Look what he says here. He says, the Gentiles, look at the words, seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Verse 33, adversative conjunction, but this is to contrast, okay? They do this, you have a relationship with God, so you don't need to do that. What you need to be doing instead is this, what? Seeking first, in case you missed it, the adversative conjunction didn't get your attention that this is in opposition to what has come before. He puts in the emphasis, the word first, just to make it crystal clear. Those people who don't have a relationship with God, they seek after that stuff. You do have a relationship with God, so don't seek after that stuff. Instead, first, just make sure you get it, seek God's kingdom. Seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all that stuff that you need, your food, your water, your clothing. He knows you need that stuff. You seek first his kingdom, and all those things are going to be given to you. What if you didn't have to work a job? Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying as an application to this passage that you should all go out and quit your job. God is content through the normal means of a Monday to Friday, nine to five job to provide for you. And we're called to that. But 
for the sake of just thinking for a moment, what if we didn't have to worry about our job or what if we didn't have to stress over job security? What if we could just serve the Lord? Believe it or not, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You don't have to stress over job security and you don't have to worry about your job. The question here is not how do you get the pay raise. The question here is not to how do you keep your employer happy. The question here is in your job, in your Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, how will you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Even if it upsets your employer, even if it means you don't get that pay raise, even if it means that your employer might find it helpful to lay you off. That's what the text is saying. Everything you may have ever wanted to do, every opportunity you may have ever wanted to take to share the gospel or to be a witness for the Lord, every time you've wanted to bless somebody in your workplace, but you were fearful of it because of the potential ramifications of sharing your spirituality in, in the cubicle or in the office or around the water cooler, all those fears that lead you to not be a bold witness Jesus addresses all of those fears, and he says, false prophet. Yeah, you might lose your job, but God's going to take care of you. Yeah, you might be reduced in hours, but God is going to watch over you. Yeah, you, you might have some stress in the workplace. You, you might not get that promotion. You don't need it. He's going to add everything to you that you need when you seek his kingdom first. I would like for you to know that in my own life, I am completely convinced beyond all doubt that this is true. I have, and I've shared several stories with you guys over the last three weeks, I have time and again seen God's faithfulness in my life. I'm not rich and I'm not preaching a health and wealth prosperity gospel. You don't put five bucks in the offering plate and get a thousand bucks back the next week. That never happens. That's not God. That's deception of the world. But every time I have stepped out on faith and said, if I starve, I starve. <laughs> you know what? I've never starved. Every time I've stepped out on faith and said, you know what? If I don't have any way to feed or provide for my family, it's on God. He's going to have to take care of it. Every time without fail, he has always met me. And as I was reflecting on this this last week, I know it's true. I uh, have had several really amazing, spectacular people leave behind the comfort and the convenience of their native country, immigrate to this country, join us here in this church with the work on the field. There's no guaranteed income from this church. There's no money promised from this church. They have to raise their own support, and then they're not ministering to the people who are paying their salary, so they, there's no guarantee that these people will continue to support them or provide for them. There's no promises anywhere. And so as they have come, the Lord has met their needs every step of the way as well. So your whole church staff can testify to the faithfulness of God to meet 
physical means. None of us are rich. I want to make a joke about the youth minister's salary, but I won't. I'll refrain at this time. <laughs> but more and more, particularly with the Blindbergs and the Levi's, when they say to me, we feel God is calling us to Canada and we want to work alongside of you. That's God speaking in their hearts, but it's also something personal between me and them as well. It's an expression of trust and it's an expression of confidence between us and our, our families. And so, although I'm not very careful to say this to them very often, I think it goes without saying they both know this. No matter what calamity, no matter what hardship, no matter what misfortune befalls them, I will personally look after them. I've told them that, not very often, but on occasion, and they know it. I love them. I care about them. And I'm just a sinful man. When they come and they say, we want to work alongside of you, to me, it's a debt of honor that I owe to them. And like I said, I'm just a sinful man. When you go alongside the Father and throw your lot in with him, do you suppose that he does not feel the same debt of honor to you? Do you really think you will prove him a liar? Do you really think that he won't meet you where you are, that he won't be faithful to provide for you, and that you are really beyond his power to help or assist? Now, most of us would say, no way, like God is good, he's faithful, but the proof is in the pudding. Bridge Baptist Church, don't be your own worst false prophet. There is serious spiritual danger in listening to your fears rather than listening to the promise of God. So do not be anxious. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you. And we pray, Father, that you would still our hearts, that you would calm our fears, that you would reassure us time and again, over and over and over again, of your faithfulness to us, of your goodness to us, of your commitment to us. Lord, we need to hear that over and over again. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here today who are struggling with financial decisions, struggling with how to honor you with, your wealth, with their wealth, Lord, it is your wealth, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would reassure their hearts they would know that you're going to take care of them. Lord, let us not give in to the fears of this world. Help us to trust in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you